when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be digging into the rumbling signs of a Brexit breakthrough and we'll be discussing Aaron Banks and the probes by the ICO and the NCA into his conduct during the Leave campaign. I'm delighted to be joined as ever by George Parker, our political editor, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Public Policy Correspondent Robert Wright. And apologies for the quality of the line, Alex is on his mobile in Brussels. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. So it's coming home. The Brexit deal finally seems to be arriving. That was the chant going throughout Westminster this week as the withdrawal talks between the UK and the EU entered their final stages. A deal is all but done, minus a few crucial little bits on the Irish backstop. But the question now is when and how it is going to land. Will Theresa May get it through her cabinet? When will the summit be? And of course, will it even fly in the House of Commons? So George Park, before we begin, thank you very much for standing in last week when I had about a food point and had to run off home after we were about to record this podcast. So thanks for that. Take us through what's been happening or not happening in Westminster on Brexit this week. Well, there was a cabinet meeting on Tuesday where Theresa May took the cabinet through the latest stages in the negotiations. And people emerged from that meeting with a bit of a buzz, as you were saying, of expectation that a deal might be quite close in Brussels. And ministers set off. There's a mini recess going on in the House of Commons this week. So ministers for some are, odd reason. No, no one quite understands why, but ministers have been jetting off around the world for pre-planned visits. But I'm told they spent a lot of time checking the Skyscanner website to make sure they could get back to London in time for an emergency cabinet meeting, which some people thought could happen as soon as Thursday. But as with all these things relating to Brexit, the deadlines kept on slipping back. And then it was going to be Friday, then it was going to be the weekend. And now most likely, according to cabinet ministers, they are expecting to come back and be presented with this outline deal on Monday or Tuesday next week. And we'll see whether that happens or not. But nevertheless, the drumbeat of progress has been building all through the week. Ministers have been invited into the cabinet office to get a view of the withdrawal treaty as currently drafted. That's about 95% of the treaty, but not the crucial bit, of course, on the Northern Ireland backstop. About 300 to 400 pages, I'm told. And so far, there don't seem to be any nasty surprises in what ministers have been seeing. So the first part of the operation seems to be going okay, but of course the second bit is the really tricky bit. So that sort of tallies roughly with what I've heard this week as well, that ministers who've seen the deal said, well, it's pretty much as what's been briefed out, what's been discussed, it's all there. But as ever, it comes back to the Irish backstop issue. We'll come on to that in a moment. Alex, what's the mood music in Brussels like this week? Because there seems to be some of a bit of a disconnect that Theresa May's government in London is really talking up this deal that we're almost there, it's going to be this week or early next week. But in Brussels, the mood music has been much sort of well it could be days it could still be weeks we're not really quite there yet certainly there are some people a little uh, concerned about the optimism building in london and worry that it's another case of a deal coming together between the cabinet that might not fly entirely with the eu27 and the eu's negotiator michel barnier 
But certainly they are laying the groundwork here for the kind of choreography for this provisional deal on the withdrawal agreement. And as George said, it it could happen early next week, certainly by the end of next week, if there isn't something that's come together, then the chances of this November summit look very, very slim because the member states need time not just to kind of look through the detail of the deal, but actually get it approved by their own parliamentary procedures and things like that. So if you're working up to the final summit where everything is formalized and finalized, then you need quite a bit of time. Next week, what we'll see, if it does come together, is this withdrawal agreement draft and then a skeleton of the Declaration on Future Relations. The draft will then be picked over by the member states. Some of them may well have seen iterations of this behind the scenes. A lot of them won't have. So, I mean, they'll be looking at these issues for the first time and they may well have some serious concerns. So there'll be a negotiation there that carries on for a couple of weeks afterwards. And then the final drafting of the future relationship document where some countries and the UK will be looking for language to maybe ameliorate concerns that may arise out of this withdrawal treaty that is binding. So that negotiation will go on up to the summit. And it's that future relationship document that you probably see leaders engaged in at the summit if they're going to be brought into this negotiation at all. So we do have an idea, George, on the choreography from the Westminster side, thanks to some leaked notes that made their way into a couple of publications which outlined a potential media strategy for selling this deal. And people are sort of wondering, was this a plan or what have you? It had the Taoiseach's name misspelt on it, so people were not taking it too seriously. But it struck me it was someone who was in a meeting where these things were being discussed, possibly with senior Downing Street staff. And it essentially said that the choreography from the British side roughly is going to be the Cabinet will agree to this, again, talking to ourselves as Alex has just pointed out. Then Dominic Raab or Theresa May then has to go out to Brussels and seal that deal. And then there'd be some kind of press conference with Michel Barnier, Dominic Raab or Theresa May or what have you to say, OK, we've got a breakthrough. We've got substantial process. It's a goer for November. Is that roughly right? I think that's right. I think you'd expect to see Theresa May going out to Brussels if the moment had come. And as you say, although people weren't quite sure of the provenance of this note, it certainly has had the ring of truth about the kind of way the government will try to sell this deal. So the sort of big trip out to Brussels by, as you say, either Rob or more likely, I suspect, Theresa May, the announcement of the, the big summit, possibly on the Sunday, the 25th of November, and then the really hard work of trying to sell the deal to the House of Commons. You know, you don't have to think about this, that if the summit is on a Sunday, no doubt there'll be some scary moments along the way. And then sometime around midnight, Theresa May and Donald Tusk and Juncker could announce that a deal has been agreed. Markets open on a Monday morning. Theresa May will make a statement in the street of Downing Street. There'll be a sort of huge push then on MPs, those wavering about whether to support the deal or not from business leaders. This leaked note suggested that maybe Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, might oblige with a tweet. (laughs) But you can imagine that they will be a, you know, you would expect Downing Street to have a big grid plan, whether it be the full court press on wavering Tory MPs and indeed wavering Labour MPs to do their bit for the national interest, knowing that if they don't, the alternative is potential economic chaos and no Brexit at all. Alex, I think my sense here is that people are not worried about cabinet resignations so much, particularly at a high level, that people, you know, Sajid Javid or Jeremy Hunt, who have been making noises that are not particularly favourable towards this deal, they're unlikely to actually walk out at this stage because I don't see how it helps their career or helps Brexit or help avoids chaos. So the real danger is not in the government, it's in the House of Commons. And is that still the sense in Brussels that even if you get this deal, the biggest obstacle is still going to be British politics back home? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
but they are looking at the kind of cabinet dynamics very carefully to see how far they can push this at this moment because you know the cabinet is the first hurdle then what happens in Westminster is kind of they feel is a bit out of their control and they hand it over to the UK to deal with at that point but the cabinet dynamics I agree it's hard to see resignations at this point at the same time we've not seen this document we've not seen the reality of it laid out and there are going to be parts that may well come as a surprise when it's seen in black and white. And the issue that a lot of member states are, are looking at closely is how much is put into the withdrawal agreement about this backstop for the whole UK, a customs union for the whole UK. Is it just a customs union, just the provisions that allow for a common external tariff with the EU? Or will there be much more? Will there be level playing field provisions? Will there be stuff about fish? Those are the kind of issues that the EU member states are worried about and may well say, look, if we're giving the UK a customs union, we should put in all this other stuff as well into the withdrawal agreement. Then that starts looking like a much more fleshed out scenario for the UK. And Mrs May may struggle to explain that it's something the UK never wants to use. I absolutely agree with that. And fish has reared its head again, George. And it's in a highly emotive issue throughout this whole thing because a lot of the rural communities around fishing ports voted for Brexit. And this has been an issue. You know, Nigel Farage has said that the fishermen are the test case for any Brexit deal. Will we have control of our fishing waters again? And there's reports on Friday that the quid pro quo for a customs union is going to be allowing the EU to access fishing waters. And that's the sort of thing where as well as losing support in the country, you might might well lose the support of a good chunk of the Scottish Tory MPs because they know for them it's an existential issue if they want to get re-elected or try and maintain their seat in Holyrood in 2021. They have to take back control of fishing waters. So there's more MPs lost. The more bones you add to this, as Alex was saying, the less chance it is to get through the House of Commons. Yeah, I mean, fish sounds like a slightly arcane issue in a relatively small part of the British economy. But in terms of Theresa May's parliamentary majority, as you say, it's very important. I think there are 13 Scottish Conservative MPs who are very exercised about this. You have a number of Tory MPs representing fishing communities in the southwest of England as well, for whom this is a really big issue. And Michael Gove is in a really interesting position here, the Environment Secretary responsible for fishing. He's given the impression that from day one of Brexit, we will have control back of our waters. The problem is, as Alex was alluding to, if you're going to have a customs union, which basically allows Britain, for example, to export processed fish back into the European market without any tariffs, then won't the European Union also demand a reciprocal right to fish in our waters? I mean, it's very hard to see why they wouldn't. And then there's going to be a moment of realisation, which I think could actually be quite choppy for Theresa May going into this crucial vote. So we haven't obviously talked about everyone's favourite topic, which is the backstop and the backstop to the backstop. So, Alex, can you, in as clearly and as straightforwardly as possible, explain where we're at on this issue and what is emerging that's going to be in the deal over the Irish border? I'll try. Uh, <laughs> the EU has always, basically, that the backstop is indefinite. It's there until and unless another arrangement is found to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. They want something that's Northern Ireland specific, both for goods regulations and for customs. The compromise that's emerged is that there's another provision that would make the customs arrangement cover the entire UK, not just Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland would be aligned with the EU for goods regulations and would basically sit in the EU's single market for a lot of the free movement of goods. The question is, do you still need the Northern Ireland-only customs element if you have a UK-wide 
sure the UK wants an exit mechanism from the UK-wide customs part, the more the Northern Ireland only element will become important for the EU. I struggle to see that there won't be a way to bring in a Northern Ireland only part to this in the exit agreement. It's very important for the Irish. It might be incredibly well disguised, but I suspect it will be there in one form or another. And of course, the cabinet here, George, there was this line that was there had to be a unilateral withdrawal mechanism. People like Dominic Raab have been very strong on this and saying we cannot be trapped in this forever because Brexit's fear that once the backstop is activated, which I think everyone in Downing Street thinks the backstop will be activated because those trade talks won't be done during the transition period, that we'll never get out of it. There'll be no way to escape from that backstop. If that is the case, then you've got to have this mutual agreement system where both the UK and the EU have provisions to discuss the backstop and when to exit it. So it sounds like a bit of a fudge. But on the other hand, it does sound like the fears of Brexiters that it will be very hard to get out of it once it's started. Yes, and this is where the legal advice of Geoffrey Cox, the pro-Brexit Attorney General, will become very important in the next few weeks to try to give Eurosceptic ministers some reassurance that this exit mechanism will actually work. And Geoffrey Cox at the Cabinet meeting this week was saying, look, it's not a binary choice here. You know, you might talk about this unilateral right to walk away from treaty commitments, but in fact, it doesn't work like that. You'd have to have some sort of mutually agreed review mechanism. And he also introduced the politics of it. He said it's not just a legal question. If we insist on this unilateral right to leave the exit mechanism, we won't get this agreed in Brussels. Then you have to weigh up different risks. The big risk, Geoffrey Cox was pointing out, is that there will be a no-deal exit next March, which will inflict very serious damage on the British economy. So it's not just a legal question. He was making the political argument as well. But it is one of the most contentious points in the final stage of these talks in the Cabinet. And then the final thing, of course, which we start at the beginning here, is the House of Commons. And those numbers are looking pretty bad. You know, I've heard reports this week that the Cabinet were told they could only rely on, say, 15 Labour MPs to vote with them. If that is the case, Theresa May can scarcely lose any Brexit and she has to keep the DUP on board as well. Otherwise, her deal will fail. And the DUP have become increasingly strident this week in their tone, looking very unhappy about the backstop that was Northern Ireland specific that Alex was talking about. But fishing as well, it's all these things. Things the DUP are getting increasingly displeased about. Whether that means they'll vote against the deal, we don't know. But when you look at the arithmetic, it's so tight. And there was one scenario I was very struck by. It was put forward by Rupert Harrison, who's been on this podcast, former chief of staff to George Osborne. And he said the deal fails the first time because of all these things and people vote against it on principle. The markets will then react and there'll be some effect of pound or what have you. And then the government will have another run at it. So the deal doesn't change at all. I don't see why it would. And in that scenario, the fear of a no deal and already seeing the impact it had on the economy would make it pass a second time just in time for Christmas. Well, that would be nice. Get it all sorted out by Christmas. I think we've heard that before somewhere. A bit um, optimistic, perhaps. Bit, well, maybe. But, I mean, look at the arithmetic. The government's got a working majority of 13 with the DUP on board. I mean, they need the DUP to support this deal. I think if the DUP are voting against it, then Theresa May's in really serious trouble. If the DUP is on board, then the whips assume that maybe 20 or so Eurosceptic Tory MPs will vote against. Then you're going to need about 15 or so Labour MPs voting with the government to get the deal across the line. It's going to be very, very tight. It's going to be one of the most exciting and nerve-wracking votes we've seen. As you say, maybe it will require more than one run at it. But I think the one thing we can't quite visualise yet is the amount of pressure MPs from all parties will be under to sign up to this deal once the deal's done. Because once the deal's agreed in Brussels, the dynamic will change. You will have an outpouring of business support for the deal. You will have 
Labour MPs in Leave voting constituencies under pressure from manufacturers, from voters on council estates saying, what are you doing? You have to get this deal. This is what we voted for, for Brexit. What are you doing putting Brexit at risk? So the pressure will be enormous. And I suspect that the numbers we hear about people who are going to vote against the deal will be the high watermark at the start of this process. And then the question is, how far can you whittle it down by the time you get to the division lobbies on that big night? And one thing I can't quite guess well about the dynamics are, for those who vote against the deal, how will that be portrayed, particularly on the Labour side? Because we saw a survey from Momentum, that's the grassroots outriders of Jeremy Corbyn, of which 92% of Momentum members want Labour MPs to vote against that deal. Now, as you said, those Labour MPs who vote against the deal, some will be painted as you're voting against the Tory Brexit. That's the way Jeremy Corbyn will try and paint it. But others will say you're actually voting for chaos and voting for no deal. And I'm not quite sure which narrative's going to take hold. Maybe there'll be several different narratives. I think there'll be several different narratives. But don't forget, on the night of this big vote, you're going to have a very odd collection of people in the no lobbies. You're going to have Jeremy Corbyn with Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. So frankly, whichever lobby you walk into, if you're a Labour MP, you're going to feel slightly uncomfortable right so i don't know people are going to have to grapple with their consciences but i just spent a bit of time just talking to labor mps this week in the members lobby and a number of them just came up to me and spontaneously said almost the same thing which is our voters voted to leave now they just want to get on with it and it depends what the deal is but i'm prepared to consider voting with the government i thought that was an interesting point and finally alex what is the sense in brussels about what happens if the deal doesn't get through the house of commons i assume there's not going to be any interest in changing the deal but what's the sense from that end i would imagine there's a deep deep reluctance to reopen the withdrawal agreement that would have been agreed they may be more open to redrafting part of the political declaration. After all, that's a political declaration of intent. So if the politics changes in London, there's still a bit of time to redraft some of that. They would also be willing to probably provide time if there's a political process involved in London might have decisive impact on the direction Britain wants to go in, an election, a referendum. If the UK came and just said, look, we can't sort ourselves out, can you give us another year or six months? I think they won't find much sympathy in Brussels. You're listening to FT Politics, the Financial Times' discussion on what's happening in Westminster. It's been another difficult week for Aaron Banks, the self-proclaimed bad boy of Brexit. The head of the Leave.eu campaign is being investigated by the Information Commissioner, the National Crime Agency, as well as the Electoral Commission for his conduct, donations and use of data during the 2016 referendum campaign. The central question has risen is where Mr Banks' £8 million donation came from. That was the single biggest donation in UK political history. No one, not even Mr Banks, appears to be particularly sure. Jim Picard, just begin by giving us an overall background on who Aaron Banks is and why we're discussing him yet again. So the first thing to start off with is just to remind people of the various Leave campaigns in 2016. You had Vote Leave, which was the official formal campaign which had the designation from the Electoral Commission. And that was the one that included lots of senior Tory cabinet ministers. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove. Yeah, you might call that inverted commas the respectable Leave campaign. And on the other side was a slightly less respectable campaign called Leave.eu, which was much more closely aligned to the UK Independence Party and Nigel Farage. And bankrolling that campaign was Aaron Banks, who was already on the scene as a substantial donor to UKIP. He'd popped up a year or two earlier out of the blue, an insurance millionaire from the West Country. 
And Leave.eu was conspicuous during the referendum campaign for having a much more gung-ho, anti-immigration, anti-political correctness, aggressive, no-holds-barred, some people would say quite offensive, they would say attention-grabbing campaign. So that's where Aaron Banks came from. And there is a key question, Miranda, about how influential that was during the referendum. Because as Jim said, the Vote Leave campaign was the one that had the TV debate, it had the airtime, it had the most coverage. But Leave EU ran a campaign that did stoke up Eurosceptic sentiment. And it got those people who were interested in Brexit fired up and out to the polling stations. And when the vote was 52-48, you can't discount the influence that they had. Is that fair? It's very fair and they were more, as Jim has indicated, unabashedly populist in their messaging. So they really, really went for the jugular on the sort of things that they were putting out on social media, etc. And I think it's fair to say that even within the broad umbrella of those who were campaigning for Brexit, there was a lot of unhappiness with the tone and how responsible it was, even inside the UKIP ranks there were those who didn't want to be associated with leave.eu. So yes, Farage, but actually other, what you might call the sensible wing of UKIP, were unhappy about the relationship with banks, even then back in the referendum campaign. So Robert Wright, why we're talking about this now is that Mr Banks is facing several investigations. I rattled them off at the beginning now, of which the most serious is the National Crime Agency, which has been referred to by the Electoral Commission. That's the body that oversees elections in this country. For this question of the donation and you did an excellent big investigation this week into Aaron Banks's business empire and I think you came away scratching your head sort of thinking well where did the money come from? Well I did and that's the central mystery in all this is that Aaron Banks was a relatively obscure businessman up until about 2014-2015 as Jim said he came along made a big donation to the UK Independence Party and then made a big donation to Leave.eu and The central problem is that around the same time, his insurance operations were in quite a lot of trouble. They weren't doing terribly well. There'd been some profit warnings from his listed company, Brightside, a few years before. He was starting a new operation called Eldon. He was having to recapitalise his reinsurer in Gibraltar. So there were quite a lot of calls on his money and not obvious oodles of money coming in. So there is a mystery there, yes. Do you think it's fair to say that we know he's a millionaire, we know he's probably a multi-multi-millionaire? It's just that question of, was he really so wealthy that he could afford to lose £8 million or whatever it was, if it was a large chunk of his money? No, No one's questioning the idea that he's fairly rich, are they? Nobody is questioning the idea that he's fairly rich. I guess what people are questioning is, as you say, was he rich enough that he could give away £8 million in this way, it is certainly hard to see from what we can see publicly that he really had those kinds of resources. Now, of course, we should say that he insists he was wealthy enough. There are people who said to me, well, he's an extremely successful businessman. We don't know everything about all his business dealings because they are privately held now. So there may be some source of income that we don't know about. So they remain mysteries. And I should stress that after writing the big read that you talked about, I have no fixed view about exactly what's gone on here. I remain 
convinced that it is a mystery and I, I don't think very many people really know what went on. Miranda, it is all very confusing because Mr Banks went on TV last weekend for an interview with the Andrew Marsh show and again the subject of this £8 million donation to Leave EU was a big discussion and it's all centred on the Isle of Man where Aaron Banks is involved in some holding companies there and whether the donation came through that or what have you and people on the Leave EU side would say this is some sort of witch hunt over people who backed Brexit because they feel it was against the establishment and what have you and someone that Robert quoted in his piece this week sort of said that, that this is the Remain media political establishment fighting back against that but do you think there's any truth to that or do you think essentially Mr Banks has just not been particularly clear about where this has all come from? Well I think it's very convenient for those who would make that argument that so far There's this controversy over whether Aaron Banks made that donation from his own money. And there's also the second tier story, which is about the Information Commissioner's Office fining the bank's operation for misuse of data, i.e. using data from the insurance companies to inform who Leave.eu could send their Brexit newsletters to. That's quite serious. The Information Commissioner's ongoing investigation into both sides of the EU referendum has as yet come up with nothing against anyone else. So it looks as if Banks is being targeted, but in fact, Banks' operation is the only one that's actually been found to be in contravention of the rules. I think there's a really important point here, which is that In the 2015 general election, it was still a quite old-fashioned election. You know, it was to do with things that happened on the TV and in the newspapers. And there was the start of campaigning through social media, etc. By the time we got to the 2017 election, we've all discussed ad nauseam the kind of upset with Labour doing more better than expected because of this incredibly impressive use of social media, the new way to motivate people online to really hyper-target your political message. The referendum came between those two general elections and we were sort of on the cusp of working out this new way to do politics with hyper-targeting. And it's incredibly important that all of the regulations are updated. It's incredibly important that all of these investigations go on and find out exactly how data is being used. Are people's data privacy being breached, etc. Because this is how political wars are going to be waged going forward. And we just need to not be squeamish about it, in my view. And I think, to rewind slightly, one of the reasons we are asking about the sources of banks' money is because specifically the Electoral Commission gave up its investigation into banks saying we don't have the skills to work out where the money's coming from and indeed whether it is his own money. And that's why we've handed it over to the NCA. And Aaron Banks' manner, we haven't really got into his style. He's a kind of swaggering, brazen, loves the attention. He can be quite funny. He can also be quite horrible. He sort of relishes that whole thing. And when you watch him in public appearances, he seems to be deliberately obfuscating and confusing people. For example, he was insisting on the Andrew Marsh show six days ago that the money had come from Rock Services, whereas he had told the committee only a few months earlier that that company was basically not active and hardly did anything. So you can see these contradictions. And then we haven't even started talking about this whole whiff of Russia, which came about because he boasted in his own book, The Bad Boys of Brexit, that he'd had a meeting with the Russian embassy. It turned out that there'd been actually rather more than one. And he is married to a daughter of a Russian official called Katya, 
who came to this country uh, many years ago, but it makes a joke about, you know, she has a number plate with the words MI5 spy on and she speaks six languages and is obviously quite a character. And I met her in an event once and, and she told me how much she loved Putin, which is pretty normal for Russians. Most Russians love Vladimir Putin. But, you know, there is that element that has raised people's interest. So on this, Robert, one important point in this story is there's a lot of reporting from some quarters. A lot of it is based on speculation and a lot of rumour about where this is all at. As Jim said on the Russia stuff, there is this whiff of it around Mr Banks, but not really a lot of hard evidence beyond these meetings at the Russian embassy. And I think we obviously have to be very clear about this because, as Miranda said, the key point is electoral law and those donations. Now, if more evidence comes out about Russia, then there may be a lot more to that but there's a lot of people I think trying to too quickly conflate the two things together and in doing that it gives Banks quite an easy get out clause and if you follow Aaron Banks on Twitter he loves taking pot shots at journalists including Jim and I very frequently and people who try and bring these two things together when the evidence is just not quite there yet. Well I think when I spent a long time researching him the impression I came away with is that it's pretty clear Aaron Banks doesn't worry too much about the fine detail of rules. He's got a lot of swagger. He's a bit of a maverick. I don't think he really understands why the rules are there. Now, everything we've seen so far is consistent with somebody who is just not really worrying about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. We've not really seen any hard evidence that crosses over into the kind of claims that some other journalists have made that would link it to money from Russia and that kind of thing. So that the important thing is the Electoral Commission referred it on the ground that they thought the money had come from the Isle of Man. It's entirely possible that the money was in the Isle of Man as a result of activities in the UK, which is what Aaron Banks has said himself. And clearly, while it would be technically a breach of the rules if the money actually came from the Isle of Man, which is outside the UK, I think most people would not regard it as anything like as serious a matter if that money had been originally generated in the UK than if the money came from somewhere else. And that's really the point that I think the NCA and the Electoral Commission will will end up probing. Exactly. And there are an awful lot of stories and allegations flying around there over the last few months. One of them was about the apparent links between Cambridge Analytica and uh, Leave.eu. But Robert, who covered the story this week... I think I'm right in saying, am I, that they didn't find anything other than just an initial little bit of preliminary work which didn't lead to a proper contract. That's quite right. There was an initial exploratory meeting, but nothing beyond that, no. Also, Robert touched on something very important there, which was the idea that for some individuals who kind of wander into the political world with a lot of money to offer, they don't understand why the rules are there (laughs) about who can fund political campaigns and why it's important to have transparency and all the rest of it. And actually, we don't know yet about these potential Russia links and whether it's true or not. But in terms of sowing mistrust in the process and giving the general idea that the whole process is corrupt anyway, there are these rules, everyone breaks them, who really cares? There are parallels there with what's going on in America. And that's actually very serious. So it's really important that the investigation takes its course and that if there has been wrongdoing, particularly actually over the use of data because of the age of hyper-targeting, that they throw the book at him, in my view. I mean, you've seen the big technology giants like Facebook getting increasingly embarrassed about their potential role in all this. There's been a new initiative. I think in this last week, you can actually click on a political ad and work out who is trying to target you. 
all of this will have to become more transparent. And I think that, you know, if Aaron Banks' feelings are hurt, tough. I suspect he's probably quite pleased in some ways that he now looks like this enormous player. Everyone's interested in his affairs. You may remember that he originally upped his donation to UKIP at the start of this saga because he originally gave £100,000 and he was former Tory donor at the time. And William Haig who I guess was Foreign Secretary then, said, well, we've never really heard of him, who cares? And so with great swagger, Mr Banks did this big press conference at his mansion in Gloucestershire, upping the figure to a million pounds. And there's always been this slight sense of him wanting attention and the media, all of us, giving it to him in spades. I think that's absolutely true. And we should just clarify again that Aaron Banks denies all these allegations and said that he will fight the electoral commission and looks forward to cooperating with the NCA's investigation. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Miranda, Jim and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.